0: important that when people think about debt, they think about it in the sense that this is business. It's business for your creditors. And their goal is to keep you in the life cycle of that debt for as long as is legally allowable. So, you know, when they tell you, oh, you know, we can offer you this really low minimum payments, or some creditors will say "You, you have the option to skip payments, don't do it. Because what's happening is that the longer you pay minimum payments, it allows them to to earn the maximum amount of money from you as their product on interest. So minimum payments are not your friend.
1: You're listening to the Almost 30 Podcast, hosted by Krista Williams and Lindsay Simsek. Thanks so much for tuning into the Almost 30 Podcast. Here we go. Hello and welcome, Almost 30 Podcast. Welcome back or welcome. We're so glad you're here.
2: So glad you're here. It's Lindsay and Krista. We are the hosts and founders of Almost 30. 30 and it started as a podcast, but now it's so much more. So much, so much more.
1: Stay tuned. Uh, we do retreats, events, we have an ambassador program and other exciting things coming this year, but we're excited to have you. We are excited about this interview today. It is going to be awesome. I needed some money talk yeah. actually. We had some money things come up. It is the, the
2: season tis to get, get my season, shit <laughs> straight. Uh, you know, we are always learning right along with you and this episode is no different. I've, you know, we're having money conversations about financial wellness. I'm just learning and taking in so much and I'm sure out there you can relate to a certain level. So this is a really... Episode with everything you know from reconciling debt in a way that is possible um, in you know a shorter amount of time than you're told that it's going to be reconciled. Uh, we talk about investing. We talk about mindset around money. We talk about setting goals and being really organized. I just I loved I loved our conversation. We welcomed on Bola Shokanbi. She is the founder and CEO
1: of Clever Girl Finance. Yeah, she's awesome and. This week, I was talking to someone I'm very close to about you know, their debt situation. And it just reminded me how much energy that takes up in your brain and in your, in your space and life when you are feeling overwhelmed with money issues and debt and understanding it and prioritization of it. And there's so many parts of the financial conversation that we as women can really help to educate one another on and get more information on. And I feel like I've really had to do my due diligence as far as learning about finances, investing, debt, myself. And it's really nice and I'm really proud that you know we can provide this information to you and that we can have this conversation together. Yeah, and and the Clever Girl Finance courses, her YouTube
2: is just such a great resource and it's so accessible. And I really think it's an important piece of our wellness that a lot of people don't think about. Like Krista said, Completely. it could take up so much energy and brain space. And so if we can get on track to being financially well, and that doesn't mean like having millions of dollars, it just means being organized and also having like, lots of clarity into the money you have and how you want to invest it and what it looks like in 10, 20, 30 years. I think that could really affect so many other parts of your life, your relationships, your health, what have you. So I'm really excited to share this conversation with Bola. And if you'd like to learn more, it's
1: clevergirlfinance.com. And we suggest joining the secret Facebook group for all the Almost 30 Nation community. In there, we have really honest, real conversations. Um, we often talk about uh, salary negotiation tactics, acting for, asking for raises, finance stuff all the time, among other things. So we welcome you to join that community. You can follow Almost 30 Podcast on Facebook, and Instagram at almost30podcast. And I just wanted to make sure you guys knew about our retreat. So we are hosting for the second year, a retreat at Calamigos Ranch, a five-star beautiful oasis nestled in the Malibu mountains. It's like restoration hardware, like in Malibu, it's gorgeous. (laughs) And we have some of our favorite practitioners and healers and uh, thought leaders coming to join us. So our lineup is incredible. We're going to be doing everything that we love at Almost 30. We're going to be connecting. We're going to be supporting one another, going deep, relaxing, rejuvenating our souls and our mm-hmm. hearts, among other things.
2: Yeah. For more information, you can go to almost 30 com slash retreat. I cannot recommend this experience enough. Thank you all for listening. It really means a lot to us. If this episode you know, touched you in any way. I helped you learn something that you're like, oh my gosh, please share it with your friends and family, anyone that you think would benefit. It really means the world to us.
1: Yep. And you can find Bola at Clever Girl Finance on Instagram and clevergirlfinance.com.
2: All right. Enjoy this one and we'll see you on the other side. See you soon. We're so happy to have you. Personal finances, long-term investing, all the things our community is so interested in learning more and more about. And it's really cool to see them kind of drop the shame around not knowing a lot, especially as women. I think it's something that, I don't know, in my experience, like I really wasn't taught and I really wasn't taught to be confident around so you know, better late than never. But I would love to just start with your story. I'm sure that you've had, you know, your own financial mistakes and learnings. And I've read about part of your story that is so inspiring and fascinating how you saved a hundred K right out of college. How? <laughs> but
0: um, I would just love to, to learn more about your story. Yeah, so I am the youngest of four children and I'm originally from Nigeria, so I'm an immigrant, child of immigrants. And, um, my story kind of goes back to my parents. Uh, My mom got married when she was 19 years old and my dad was a little over 30 and she didn't have a college degree. She was a high school graduate while my dad was a multiple master's degree holder. I think he was in the process of getting his PhD and there was this idea that you know my mom was going to stay at home and raise the kids which was the traditional you know plan that a lot of families went by but as my mom started getting older she realized that there were things that were happening with her friends in her circle mm. that she did not like you know she was seeing her friends getting divorced unfortunately and just having nowhere to go nothing you know no money she was seeing, you know, a couple friends lose spouses, unfortunately, and just having no idea about the family finances because they were not involved. And so my mom decided that she just never wanted to find herself in that position. If, you know, something happened to my dad or they got separated, which they've been married for, I think, almost 50 years now, <laughs> but, um, you know, she just didn't want to find herself in that position. And also just thinking back to her background where, you know, her mother was not formally educated. She wanted to be able to get her college degree and be able to say that, you know, she was able to, you know, go to college, get educated. So my mom took it upon herself to go back to school. And this was something that my dad was not entirely excited about. You know, because there were four kids, but you know, there was arguments about that and she went back and fast forward several years, you know, my mom started she got her graduate degree, she started hustling different businesses, working in an investment banker, having a hair salon, having a bakery, all kinds of things. She started putting money aside in little little ways. And my dad happened to go through a financial downturn where he had to retire about fifteen years earlier than planned. That was a huge impact to family finances and just you know, retirement plans in general. And she stepped up and she's like, well, I'm working and I've been saving money and I'm going to help out with the family and I'm going to help support you both to go to college because... At the time in Nigeria, there was a lot of economic instability, so it was taking like seven to ten years for someone to finish college because of strikes and all kinds of things. And um, my mom was like, "I don't want you to be in that situation, so I will, I will help you. And so your job is to look for partial scholarships because we don't have a money tree in the back of our house. Um, <laughs> we're supporting you to go to college at the expense of you know our retirement, our long term um, well being, and you're going to focus on getting good grades. And so you know, watching my mother go through that, watching her console friends who would come to our house, you know, sitting in the living room crying, oh my God, I don't know what to do. As a young child was very impactful on me. And just seeing her navigate through getting her own education and starting to work, even though my dad was not necessarily um, happy with that, had a huge impression on me. And then watching her being able to pay for my college education, you know, also again, huge, huge gift that she gave me. And it just, in my head, made me want to do everything possible to make my parents proud and also not find myself in the position that I was seeing my mother's friends in when I was a young child.
1: Sounds like there was a lot of transparency in the household, you know, as it relates to money. This could have been, you know, I could be wrong and it could have been shared to you after the fact, but were they transparent with you about, you know, money and your mom? having to go to school and sort of your dad taking the lead and then shifting that. Was
0: that something that was a conversation within the household? Not necessarily a conversation. I think it was more learning by observation. It wasn't like, oh, come on, children, let's talk about the family finances. (laughs) It was more like you know, hearing parents talk, hearing parents argue, watching friends come to the house. My mom's friends come to the house, learning that my dad got retired and him telling us, you know, I can't work anymore. So it was a lot of learning by observation and just listening, you know, but my parents were also, they, they talked a lot. It wasn't, they, they had this communication that even if they were arguing, there was talking <laughs> always going <Wow>. on. <laughs> so there was a lot to listen to and a lot to hear. And my parents would always tell me, like my dad would always tell me, um, you know, you know, you want to make sure that you can stand on your own two feet. And this was like, as he started to see my mom, becoming that independent person. My dad would tell me, you don't ever want to be a liability on anybody, especially not a mom, especially not a man. Um, My mom would tell me that you want to make sure that you can be financially successful and you don't have to rely on anybody. So they did impart those lessons to us.
2: So you went to college and your mom was able to pay for it um, because of what she had saved. And then I know... So right outside of college, you were able to save a lot of money in the years following. And I just love to to know like how, how you had like the wherewithal to be that savvy and creative <laughs> and exactly like how you did it. Because I think a lot of people fall into right out of college a lot of things are like kind of comfy in college. Whether your parents are supporting you, or you have like your dining bucks, and you're like not really thinking about real money and real saving. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to know like where you got that and how you did
0: it. Yes, I'll, I'll just keep a little bit of backstory because sometimes when people hear, "Oh yeah, your parents pay for college," like, "Oh, there's that trust fund baby. It's so easy for her." <laughs> but no, that was no, no. not the case, you know. <laughs> so coming to college, I came to college abroad because of the economic situation in our country, and oh, I was i went to the college my mom went to in Austria and then I moved here to finish my last year and I got a partial scholarship and I actually ended up taking five and a half years versus four years to finish my degree because there was a point where there was just not enough money. And my mom was like, I don't have enough money. I need to work some more to gather some more money. And we had sat down and talked about, well, how can I get a student loan? And I couldn't get one because I was an international student. And the only way I could get a loan was by asking like a family member to co-sign for me who lived here or you know there and we just didn't want to put that burden on anyone or have to ask anyone for that financial assistance and so i took the time off and so my mom supported me it was a gift she gave me it wasn't my right you know it was a huge opportunity so i just wanted to kind of like put that out there for the for your listeners and so coming out of college knowing that my parents had sacrificed this right my dad had to retire early you know money was tight and when he had to retire early, we downgraded our entire lives. We moved from a five bedroom house to a two bedroom a two bedroom apartment. We went from having three cars to having one car, because my dad at the time had spent a lot of money educating my my brothers. He was a huge. His idea is that once you have education, you can achieve anything in life. You just need to have a good education, and my dad was really strong on that. He he had a really strong mindset about education because. We come from a background where both of my parents are the first to go to college. Um, My dad has a twin sister who is not formally educated. This means my aunt cannot read and she cannot write, um, but she's savvy. You know, she does business. And this was because my dad's father at the time did not believe in educating the female child. And he actually didn't really believe in education in general, just because of, you know, the history of our country with colonialism and all that kind of stuff. And so my dad actually did not start first grade until he was 13 years old. And so so my dad realized that he had had all these opportunities to travel, to educate his children, to give us, you know, different things because of his opportunity to be educated versus his twin sister, who is his best friend, but just had a completely different life because she was not formally educated, right? And so knowing that my dad really prioritized educating his kids, the best schools he could afford, he would send my brothers to. And so they wanted me to have that opportunity of being able to get a college degree so that I would have the best opportunity. So knowing that coming out of college, knowing the sacrifice, knowing where my parents are coming from, there was no way I was not going to try to do something. And so I was living in the States here um, in New York, got a job there. And I had no idea about finances, about, you know, I've been told like be smart with money, save, but I had never done a budget before. Right. Cause I didn't really have that much to budget. <laughs>
1: I feel that. (laughs) Um, I never,
0: (laughs) you know, the 401k was just like foreign to me. And my parents are immigrants. They didn't have a 401k. Nigeria was not a credit-based society at the time. So there are all these things that I didn't know. And my parents couldn't help me with because they also didn't know. And so I got a job earning $54,000 a year after a few weeks graduating from college. And in between those few weeks, I worked at a CVS um, as a cashier because I wanted to make money like now, now, now. And when I got that job, after taxes, my t- paycheck came out to so about $40,000. And I was, okay, I'm so rich right now. I can't believe I have this much money. I <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> never, never made that much in my life. To me, it, was like, it could have been a billion dollars I was earning. It was amazing. I learned very quickly that it was not. <laughs> but <laughs> I was like, okay, what can I do to try to save as much as possible? And I remember sitting in the HR orientation at the new job. And she started talking about a 401k and free money. And I was like, okay, I'll take the frame money. And then, you know, just by trying to figure out what the 401k was, I found myself in a bookstore and I picked up a personal finance book and then I started to read it. And from there, I started learning about budgeting and saving and emergency funds and long-term goal planning and all these different things. So I started to put money aside, and starting with that 401k. Um, I, saw, I taught myself how to budget. I got really lean and mean with my budget. You know, I got a place in New Jersey And commuted into the city. Um, I actually bought a condo out in South Jersey and I had a mortgage of $900 a month at the time. And, you know, I kept my grocery budget low. I I was working in technology consulting, so I would. I was traveling a lot for work and they would cover like lunches. But then I would walk through the offices whenever I was around and see who was having a baby shower, who was having a retirement party. And I was like, oh, I don't know who you are, but congratulations. I'll take the bagels. I'll take the free lunch. I'll- <laughs> and I remember vividly, yeah, I, I remember vividly at the time.
1: That like a if- wedding crasher at work. <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> and there was a time where we, there was this policy at the company that if you were working well, on the project I was on, if you stayed at, at work past like 7.30, they would cover dinner, right? And so I would do everything possible to stay in the office until 7.30. <laughs>
1: So I could get the free dinner. You're like napping in the conference room. You're like, I'm like just oh, finding, so finding work finding to Finding projects. Do. Yeah. So there
0: was that, um, you know, like just getting really lean. I mean, with the budget. And then while I was doing that, I started a side hustle um, purely by chance, but it was a huge game changer. And me being able to see um, was a photography business. And wow. I started it because I had, my dad had always taken pictures of us as, as kids. And one of the things that I did was I saved up to buy a very basic entry level, camera. And I went to a friend's wedding and her photographer arrived late. And she's like, I you take some pictures of, of me getting ready. Otherwise I won't have anything. And I took these photos and she was like, oh, these are great. I love them. And I was like, wait a minute, I can start something here. So I put an ad on Craigslist for a free photo session, free wedding. Right, and someone hired me to do their wedding, and I was like, "Oh my god, this person's going to trust me." (laughs) (laughs) Their day, but they didn't really care, so I went, I did it, and I got a three hundred dollar tip because they were really happy with their photos, and that was the beginning. So, with with in addition to you know saving my four hundred one k, my the first year I started the wedding photography business, I earned $10,000. I bought equipment. I paid my taxes. The second year I earned $30,000, um, you know, bought more equipment, paid taxes. But in it, you know, with my 401k saving in cash for emergency savings and the money I save from my business, um, I was able to save well over $100,000 by, by the time I got to the three and a half year mark. So, I also saved bonuses, every bonus I got, like every measly bonus I got. If I got, you know, $2,000 taxed at 50%, I would save the $1,000. I saved every tax return I got and I saved every raise I got. So, I started off at $54,000 before taxes. And then by the time I got to the three and a half years, I think I was making somewhere around in the 70s, mid 70s. Um, and then after taxes, it was probably around Maybe like fifty five thousand um, dollars. I just acted like I didn't get any raises, so I would save that as well. And during that time, I purchased a home. You know, like I said, I saved up for that down payment separately, um, and so that's kind of what I did to to save that money.
1: Wow! So it's side hustle. It's uh, just maintaining the same lifestyle at that fifty thousand dollar amount. It's tapping into the four hundred one k where they match the matching at your organization. It's thinking creatively about ways in which your current job could support you in saving money. It's living in South Jersey where you bought a (laughs) condo. I I, want to talk, I lived in, um, I lived in Long Island city, so I was on the other side, but, um, I do want to talk about, you know, buying a house at your age. Was it easy for you? You know, just, was it easy for you to buy a house. Was there a lot of money you had to put down?
0: Like, what was that process like? And do you think it was the right decision? So I saved $10,000 to put down as a down payment. You know, this was in my my, my mid-20s. I wasn't thinking about if it was the right decision. I just knew that I had read in the book that, you know, you want to have an asset.
1: <laughs> so <you're> like, <laughs> yeah. okay. So I was like, okay. Well, like, i like, do just...
0: count? <laughs> exactly. You know, and I also wanted to be able to just have somewhere from my, you know, my family to stay too. Right. You know, my mom right. had been renting. Um, and so my mom moved in with me at the time. So yeah, like it wasn't, I didn't really think about whether it was right or wrong, but I saved to purchase it. Um, I purchased it at, you know, just at the tail end, tail at the beginning, actually of the 2008, um, yep. recession. recession. And so it was like, okay, this house is just, I just bought it and it has this condo. I just bought it and helped buy it a ton of value, but I held on to it for a long time. I think I had it for about nine or 10 years before I sold it. So yeah, it, to me, it was a good decision. It was something that, you know, it was just me trying to be smart with my money.
2: Wow. So buying a house really early on. And then, you know, that makes me think about like a house is an investment and the four, starting the four hundred one k investment in your retirement. So I'm wondering what other type of investments you started to make because mm-hmm. I know a lot of a lot of people in our community have been asking about that, hearing that the earlier the better. So I'd love to hear about like your first investments.
0: I mean, so just to go back to the house as an investment, that's very debatable, you know, because when you <laughs> you know a house you live in, real estate, you know that you rent out, yes, investment because you're talking about cash flow, people. Paying rent that you can use to pay the mortgage and then appreciation, etc. But the home that you live in, you know, the idea is that you pay it off and you pass it down generationally. That's the American dream, but that really doesn't happen anymore, you know. Um, but people will need to keep in mind that when you're purchasing a house that you're going to live in, it's you can consider it as don't make it the investment because you're paying a mortgage, right? You're going to pay property taxes if you're in that house short term. And it even appreciates by $10,000. You probably have paid more than that in your mortgage, in your property expenses, property tax expenses, in renovations or like repairs and things like that. Uh, You know, but at the same time, you need somewhere to live. So I would just say it's like one of... Um, but in terms of my first investments, it was really investing in, in my 401k. And then once I got to the point where I was maxing out my 401k, I started learning how to invest independently, like outside of my retirement accounts. So I started learning about individual soft investing and then investing in index funds. So there was that. Uh, my business was an investment. So every time I spent money on that, on the high end equipment, which costs a lot of money, I was investing in being able to create better equipment equipment, better photos um, and build a better portfolio so I could hire more um, clients that would pay me uh, a good amount of money. And I I think by the time I got to, I had the business for seven years and my highest paying year, I think I earned over, I earned a little over $70,000 from that business. So that was a worthwhile investment because that year I earned more than I was earning (laughs) at my full-time job. wow um, from my side hustle that I was working nights and weekends so there're different ways to invest right um the, for most people the easiest way is going to be for if your employer offers you an uh, you know an retirement plan that's just a no-brainer because you can automate those transactions and then start to learn about investing also for anyone who's listening if you're pay- if you have debt especially high interest debt paying off that debt is an investment, because the quicker you can pay off your high interest debt, the more you can save in interest payments, right? So imagine if you had a credit card that had a 20% interest rate, right? Um, that 20% is being compounded, you know, depending on what contractual agreement you have, it may be compounded daily, you know, biweekly, whatever it is. And what the trouble with debt is, it's never really the principal balance. It's always the compounding effect on the interest that causes people to stay in debt, right? That's sometimes over like a few years, you'll find that the interest you owe is more than what you actually borrowed. So when you pay that down, that's tons of money that you would not be paying in interest in the future that you can then put towards other things. And then real estate is another you know way to invest, but that's more capital intensive because you have to have the cash to put down. You have to build big buffers of emergency funds to be able to maintain your property. There's the idea of dealing with crazy tenants. (laughs) So, you know, there's different ways to invest, but the three key ways are in the stock market, in real estate
1: or in small business. Yeah. I want to talk about just quickly on the debt thing. I want to talk about like prioritization of paying off debt. And I think, you know, you touched on it with um, high interest credit cards first, but can we go down that line of like, if someone has uh, various types of debt and they want to pay them off, what should they prioritize?
0: That's a really great question. And I think sometimes people have different types of debt, like they have a mortgage or a car note, credit cards, student loans, medical debt. And it's like, okay, where do I start? I don't know what to do. And so there's two ways to pay off your debt and either of them work. The first one is the snowball method. This is where you take all your debt and you prioritize it from smallest balance to highest balance regardless of interest rate. So your priority one debt is your smallest balance and you put as much money as you can towards that debt in in addition to in excess of the minimum payments to pay it off while you pay the minimum to all all the others. And the whole idea and paying more than the minimum to that top debt so that you can pay it off as quickly as possible. And then you roll all that money you are paying to that first debt into your second debt and you snowball it down the line, right? That's a really popular way to pay off debt because when you can get rid of that small balance. As human beings, we thrive on quick wins. You're like, oh my God, I did it. I'm making progress. I can start to see the light at the end of the tunnel. So a lot of people love the snowball method. Because you're not really taking interest rate into consideration, it may not necessarily save you the most amount of money on your total interest payments or the life of your debt, But because you're paying more than the minimum, you're doing your best to do that every month, you will still save money on those interest payments. The whole idea is to counter compounding. So think about compounding on debt as an automatic shovel. That's just digging, 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 and you're trying to fill in this hole, right? And if you're, if you're putting the exact amount of sand back into the hole that the shovel is digging out, then you, that's the minimum payment. There's no difference. And if you're putting less, right, then the hole gets deeper And there's no difference. So the whole idea is to put as much sand into this hole, much more than this automatic shovel is digging, right? So that's the idea with the snowball. And then the second method is the avalanche. And this is the method that will allow you to save the most amount of money on interest payments. But it may be, it may take you more time to pay off your biggest debt. So this is where you take your debt that has the highest interest rate and you put that on the top of your list and you focus on attacking that debt. Um, For many people, you know, the debt that has the highest interest rate could also be their smallest debt, right? Which is great. For some people, their debt that has the highest interest rate is their biggest debt. So it's really just prioritizing it, picking a method, either one works, whichever one works for your comfort level. And your whole idea is that for that top priority debt, you're paying as much more than the minimum payment as you can. And it's important that when people think about debt, they think about it in the sense that this is business. It's business for your creditors. And their goal is to keep you in the life cycle of that debt for as long as is legally allowable. So, you know, when they tell you, oh, you know, we can offer you this really low minimum payments, or some creditors will say you, you have the option to skip payments, don't do it. Because what's happening is that the, uh, the longer you pay minimum payments, right, it allows them to, to earn the maximum amount of money from you as their product on interest. So minimum payments are not your friend. Don't you know? Don't assume that. Well, I can fit that minimum payment into my budget because the the greater debt is still growing. Yeah,
2: and I guess on that topic too, like what percentage if you're budgeting, you know your your needs, so your rent, your food, bills, etc. And then short-term and long-term goals, where does that fit in? Where does paying off these debts fit in? Like what percentage mm-hmm. should, you, should you dedicate?
0: So that's another great question. And I like to tell people that when when it comes to budgeting, you mm-hmm. want to create a plan that works for you and your life objectives, your goals, right? So how soon do you want to get out of debt? How soon do you want to save that money? There are lots of standard budgeting tips and goals out there, like 50, 30, for example, where you put 50% to your essentials, 30% to your wants, and then 20% to your um, long-term goals. right? But if you are focused on aggressively getting out of debt and you're like, you know what? This debt is making me sick. I want it out of my life now. Then you don't have to put 50% of your money towards essentials right? You can reduce your housing costs, get a roommate, move back in with your family, Um, whatever you can do to bring those essentials down, those expenses down so that you can put that extra money towards your debt. Mm -hmm. You don't need to spend 30% so that you can take that, you know, quarterly vacation, or you can go shopping or out to drinks with your friends. You can cut that in half and say, I'm going to put the rest of this money towards my debt so I can pay it off quicker. So when you think about percentages, first of all, ask yourself, how bad do I want to get out of this debt or how bad do I want to save this money? And then see, you know, where you can cut back on in order to put the additional funds towards your debt. I will also add that, you know, a lot of times people only think about cutting back, right? But you can only cut back so much because you have to sleep somewhere. You have to eat food and you have to be able to get to work. <laughs> so you're going to get to a point where you've just tried everything possible. And you yeah, cannot... you're like, I've gone to every retirement and birthday party at work. There are no exactly <laughs> that, was, that was me saving. Like I've done everything possible. And then you now want to look on the flip side, right? Combine cutting back with what can I do to increase my income? And when I say that to people, like, oh, it's easy for you to say. Um, and it is easy to say, right? Because this stuff is, is hard to do. Paying off debt, saving money is not easy because if it was, guess what? would all be on the Mediterranean in our yachts. <laughs> I'll have my glass of champagne. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be waving to you across the ocean on your own yacht. <laughs> right? It's, it's uncomfortable. Your yacht says Clever Girl Finance on yes, the side. Exactly. <laughs> it's uncomfortable. It's annoying. But yes, it's, it's not going to be easy. And so when you think about increasing your income, what can you do? You can ask for a raise. that work? Right. Hey, boss, you know, I know that annual reviews are coming up. I've completed all my projects. I've gotten all this amazing feedback. You know, I want to talk to you about getting a raise. I want to talk to you about my next bonus. You can look for a better paying job, right? So let's say your boss is just like not giving you the raises for the work that you've done and you know you're doing amazing. You can find a higher paying job. Job. You can get a part-time job, right? So a lot of us come home from work and we sit down and we catch up on Vikings and Game of Thrones and whatever else is hot on TV. That's amazing. But sometimes if you have this big goal, right, that you really want to accomplish, maybe you can sacrifice that time to go out and get a part-time job so that you can bring in that extra money. You know, there's there's nothing wrong with that. There's no shame when it comes to doing the things you need to do to save money or get out of debt. So you can get that part-time job. A lot of us can take a look in our closets, in our kitchens, in our house, in our households, electronics, clothes, kids clothes, kids things, clothes with t- Tags on them that we can put on eBay, Facebook Marketplace, Poshmark, take to the local consignment store to get additional money that we can put towards our debt. So there's, and then many of us are also really good at side hustles, right? Women in particular, we are killing it in the business game with starting businesses, right? someone tells you, oh my God, you're really great at that graphic design, or I really love this cake you made, or you know, whatever it is, think about ways you can start to charge for that. And when you start to do all these things, make yourself uncomfortable, go out of your way to cut back, to increase your income, you have to keep in mind that this is valuable time and you don't want to do all this extra work and let that money slip through your fingers. You want to set that put that money towards that goal of paying off debt or saving money. Yeah, I think one of the
1: things that you said was like about being honest about your finances at the beginning, like what you're spending on. I think that's where there's a miss a lot of times is like true honesty about what you actually need to spend money on and how you spend your money. So it's like, how much do you need all of these things? I think when people get really serious about it, it's hard to actually believe like, oh, I actually don't need to spend $30 a week, you know, a day on lunch, which is me. But it's like that honesty about what you actually need and what you don't, I think is really, really important. And sometimes it's hard. I think it's you know, it's hard for people to be honest for themselves in that way. And I was someone that I, I knew that budgeting didn't always work for me. So I always had side jobs in addition to my job, or I would like move jobs every two years. And my salary would increase like by 25, 30% each time, because it's just, it was easier for me to like get a different higher salary that way than within a business. I think oftentimes women start at a certain money, say it's $54,000 a year. And getting up to 70 is great. I mean, that's over, you know, that's a great amount to be $16,000 more in three years, but oftentimes people get raises that are between five, seven, and 10, maybe at maximum every year, it's usually a little bit lower. Um, mm-hmm. and that's adjusted by cost of living percentage, which is, you know, legally mandated in some States. But I think moving jobs is a really good one to get a higher, to get a higher income. You're taking on different responsibilities. And then I've always thought that, you know, the side hustle was like the best way I'd rather make more money than like sort of cut back on my expenses, uh, living yeah. in some, of you know, the most expensive cities like you were.
0: Yeah, exactly. And there's, there's, do what works best for you. You know, I feel like we live in this space where I remember when I was trying to save money, and um, I had friends or I would say acquaintances who were working on Wall Street, and their annual bonus or their their sign-on bonus. So they got a sign-on bonus. We're all new college grads, and then they got an annual bonus within a year, and the the sign-on bonus was more than my salary, my year salary. There was a, a friend I had that got a $50,000 sign-on bonus. And then she got a $100,000 annual bonus in that one year on top of her salary. That's like, that was my salary times three. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And she did not pay off her student loans. She, and she owed wow. like 40K. She was traveling and buying Louis Vuitton and living in the fanciest apartment. And that was intimidating for me, right? For, it was like, oh my God, like, am I trying to keep up with this girl? I can't afford to go to the dinners and the lunches. And and it was a group of people like that. And after a while, I was like, this doesn't make sense for me. And they would say, why aren't you coming to hang out? What's wrong with you? You're trying to save. That's ridiculous. Like who does that in New York? You know, things like that. And I just really had to shift my circle of influence to be able to focus on being able to save, even though I wasn't making anything close to what those people were making. So like I said, it's going to be uncomfortable. You're going to have to do things that you don't like, but there's no shame in, you know, the part-time job or starting a business and, There's nothing wrong with you trying to get a better paying job. I know there's lots of people who that I've talked to that will say, okay, I want to get a certification that costs $500 so that I can get this better paying job. That's going to give me a 20% increase. And people that they know will say, no, why are you trying to, go above your, your level. Like, why aren't you comfortable with what you have? Like don't, what's wrong with the job that you have? Your boss is amazing, but that sometimes that's not enough. And sometimes, you know, when people tell you things like that, then you start to feel like, okay, well, I shouldn't, I won't be able to do it. I can't do it. I'm not capable of doing that. So it's important that the people you surround yourself with that influence you, that they are, are they're like-minded and they're also thinking about how they can grow and how they can achieve their own goals as well love that. And that brings up, you know, to like the emotionality of
2: of handling and learning about finances and paying off debt. Like even thinking about that girl that you just described where, you know, she gets all this money, earns all this money and then wants to kind of like, celebrate and kind of celebrate through how she lives her life, vacations, whatnot. And then you on the other side of it, kind of witnessing this, trying to keep up with the Joneses in that way is also another aspect of like just how emotional it can be. So like, how have you found, and I know you work with, you know, in group coaching as well, like, you know, these conversations around like the emotions behind money
0: and saving and managing money, like how have you found that middle wave? I mean, there, there's so many emotions. I mean, there's jealousy, right? People doing better than you. There is resentment. Um, you know, there is anger there. There is self-judgment because you've made all these mistakes. And if you had not made all these mistakes and you won't be here and you would have money in the bank. And there's all these in-betweens and combinations of all these different emotions <laughs> and yeah, it's you know, security it's fear it's worthiness all, yeah, it's so exactly much. especially as women we carry emotions like our handbag on our mm-hmm. shoulder and we just pull totally. them out as we need them okay i'm gonna be angry okay i'm gonna be sad i'm gonna pull that <laughs> one out like <laughs> that's just you know for a lot of us that's just it's part of our nature and you know at the same time it is our secret weapon right like emo- there's emotions are not bad it's just how do we channel them how do we manage them them. And I'm all about, you know, the first thing you, you're going to feel all these emotions. It's okay. Right. If you, if you need to go to your kitchen and break all your plates, do it, just make sure they're the cheap ones, <laughs> 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 sweep it up, put it in the trash, but then take that energy, take that anger and channel it and put it, you know, be angry at your debt as opposed to the girl that has the car that you wish you had. But if you hadn't made that mistake, you know, that kind of stuff. We have to, we have to learn how to channel our emotions to the things that are really causing us, right? It's not that the girl, she's living her life. It's the debt that we have. That's what we should be angry at. And that we should use our emotion to fuel, you know, our motivation to want to get ourselves out of that debt or to want to save that money or to want to leave that bad relationship, whatever it, whatever it might be. It's really important. And I always tell people that it's all about forgiveness, we have to forgive ourselves. We've Every single one of us has made mistakes. The wealthiest people in the world, whoever you admire, Warren Buffett, you know, Oprah, Sarah Blakely, all those people, Michelle Obama, they've all made mistakes. And you have to look at your mistakes as opportunities. And they're opportunities in the sense that you can learn from them. You can look at what happened in that situation and figure out, okay, this is how I felt that I don't ever want to feel again. This is what I did that I don't ever want to do again and take that lesson and use it to you to, to helping you take that next step and applying it to your success, I think people make the mistake of you know getting angry, getting upset, feeling jealous, and as opposed to assessing the situation and seeing what they can learn from it and apply it to their next step, they come they they fall into this like self pity soup, and it's like woe is me, I'm not meant to be successful. That person is so lucky. Who do they think they are? And then you call your other people in your circle of influence who are in the same position and you have this whole pity party together. It's like, yeah, I told you, girl, can you imagine like, yeah. you know, what they're doing and all that kind of stuff? And we just get nowhere. Okay, so it's really getting objective and number one, forgiving yourself, knowing everyone has made mistakes. Number two, those emotions you feel, channel them towards motivating you to get out of debt or to save money and then shift your circle of influence. You know, if people are talking you down let's hang out this weekend. you know what? I can't do it this weekend. You know, you can block someone's number on your phone. It's perfectly okay. They don't have to know. And (laughs) I love that. The other other (laughs) thing I will say is you want to be mindful of who you share your goals with. Um, A lot of people will kill your goals and it has nothing to do with you and everything to do with their own self limitations and what they think Mm -hmm. they cannot accomplish. Right. And they, but they can plant seeds in your mind, especially when you have the small, tiny baby goal that you haven't even given a chance to stand or to walk yet. And someone tells you, oh, that's nonsense. Like no one in your family has done that. Oh, that's a stupid idea. And then, you know, when we hear that, we just throw it away. Or we say, you know what? That's not meant for me. So some people, they don't need to know your goals. They don't know, they don't need to know your goals. I always, you know, I tell my friends that when someone hasn't accomplished something that you're trying to accomplish, as much as they love you, as much as they have good intentions for you, they're not always necessarily the best person to give you advice right? they are not going to ask someone who has been divorced five times, how do I build a lasting relationship? They can tell you their mistakes and you can try to create a lesson from that, right? But that's about the best they can do. Yeah. I love that. I think that's that's so underrated and important the
1: circle of influence and i especially think that we as women start to talk about money more start to talk about what we're making and start to talk about getting raises and you know that kind of thing i think the circle of influence becomes even more important because then if we're sharing openly and honestly you know you have to be careful about whose advice you're taking about who you're listening to and sort of about you know what you're sharing and you know, I've heard two different veins of thought related to sharing your dreams and goals. One being share it with everyone, manifest it to the world. Like, you know, it's kind of like affirming it to the universe when you're speaking out loud, but then I've also heard, you know, keeping your goals close to you. And I, in my experience, I've really stuck more to like keeping my goals close to me just because it can like ruminate within myself personally. And it does protect me from like any outside opinions, which could deter me, you know, on my path. Yeah. I wanted to talk about the, just a, a last point on the side hustle to full-time. So you actually had your full-time job and then you made Clever Girl Finance. You know, you, you supported that through um, having your job. So you had photography, you, had, you started Clever Girl Finance. Can you talk about um, steps that you took to prepare yourself to allow yourself to take your side hustle to full-time?
0: So I was kind of getting to the tail end of my wedding photography business. I wasn't doing as much photography anymore because I had kids, um, back issues, all kinds of stuff. (laughs) But, you know, I knew that I was going to be transitioning into clever finance and, you know, I wasn't sure if it was going to be a full-time thing. Like there's nothing wrong with a part-time side hustle that is just part-time that works too. But as I started to put in the work, I realized that if I wanted to build something, right, vision I had in my mind, I was going to need to dedicate more time, even though the revenue was not coming in right away. And so I laid out my numbers, like, what is it going to cost me to open the doors of this business? What is it going to cost me to keep my doors open for my business if I made $0 over the next 12 to 18 months? And then what is my backup plan if it just doesn't work out? And so I started to save money. I put aside about 18 months of personal finance expenses for my household. Um, It was very helpful that i have a working spouse, but I also did not want my business to impact my financial obligations. I didn't want him to feel like I was now this burden, you know, I was creating a burden and not being able to accomplish our goal. So I decided to save that 18 months of personal finance expenses while we were working. And I put aside some money for, um, Clevero Finance as well to like help me keep my, you know, website on, on like, you know, those little fees that you have here and there and started thinking about ways to generate revenue. And then my backup plan was that, okay, if I quit my job and I do this for 12 to 18 months and it, it doesn't work out, I'm either going to go get a part-time job. There's no shame in that game, or I'm going to go back and get a full-time job and make Clevero Finance my part-time side hustle until I can get it on its feet. And so that's really what I did. I started putting money aside. I started like, you know, It's the hustle, (laughs) Mm -hmm. doing everything I, I could to bring in revenue, testing a ton of different things, you know, and, but, but it was very, um, helpful to have that cash buffer, right? Because you guys know, you ladies know when you're building a business, it's like, it's almost like it's like a curse and a blessing at the same time because it's all you ever think about it's heavy on your mind you're trying to figure out how to get product market fit how to grow your audience marketing there are so many different things right and then adding finances on top of that not being able to pay your bills i don't know how i'm gonna pay my rent all that that's just an additional stressor in your life and if you can minimize that if you can Work part time or work full time, and just keep the the, rev- the income coming in while you figure out your business revenue. That can make so much of a difference on your mental health.
2: Yep, 100%. Yeah, one hundred percent. It was definitely an integral part of our growth where we had full time jobs. In addition, as we grew almost thirty for about two years, and it mm-hmm. really just took the pressure off of the brand and the idea to allow it to grow on its own, you know, on its own terms, and really give it as much love as we could, but also not worry about the rent the bills yeah. all of that yeah. it was really really important we have a few questions from our community that i that i wanted to ask you the first is a specific one but i think a really important one what's your opinion on buying a house with a partner before marriage
0: to be honest i don't really have i'm, I'm not i don't have any issue with it i just want to make sure that you make sure that all your name your name is on all the paperwork. (laughs) Mm, That's a good one. (laughs) And why is that? You're on the title, you know, you're on the, you know, everything that has to do with this asset you're purchasing, make sure that you're you're on it. And this is in the event that the relationship doesn't work out, right? You want to be able to walk away from it and take whatever is yours with you, especially legally, Mm. right? And if you're not married, then... So lots of people buy homes with partners, right? And just make sure that your name is on the title. Make sure Mm. that, you know, you decide who's putting what down for this down payment, make sure you know that way when it comes to, to, if you, God forbid, if it doesn't work out, then you kind of know that you can take what's yours and go with it. Have there been, and just as like kind of a, um, a second
2: question to this one, where have you found great ways to communicate with your partner about finances over the years? Because I think sometimes it's like a, Kind of a taboo topic, at least in the beginning of a relationship.
0: <laughs> I mean, in the beginning of a relationship, you guys have to find your, your love language. <laughs> and my mm-hmm. husband and I certainly had to get there. Like, we had a lot of battles about many things, like taking out the trash, why isn't the bed made this morning, and <laughs> money, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? But we kind of had to get to this space. So, for instance, my husband doesn't like being told what to do. Like, this is how we're going to spend our money this month. Like doesn't work for But then uh-huh. um and then so we got to a point where we manage our finances our our, so our, our finances are joint but separate. So we have separate checking accounts because um, I got married when I was twenty nine. Um, we we're already establishing our careers. I'm not going to explain to you why I bought tech gum it just doesn't work for us. Like that like small micromanaging doesn't work for us. So we have separate checking accounts, but we, we came to this agreement where, you know, I was that girl that would buy a pair of shoes and hide them in my car for like weeks. And be like, oh, you mean these shoes? I've had them for two years. You mean you haven't seen them? <laughs> you know, and, t- and he was doing the same thing. And we were like, and I was like, I know you just bought that thing because I've never seen it before. And there was conflict <laughs> about that. And honestly, like if you start lying about the small things, you know, who knows what else? So we came to this agreement, okay, this is not worth it fighting over it's not worth telling the lie about some stupid shoes that i bought so if we're going to spend anything over five hundred dollars or we have like a major goal we're working towards and we want to have we want to do something that's expensive take a trip whatever it is right we're going to talk about it and it's simple hey you know i want to buy these shoes text message because we know what we're planning this month i want to buy this electronic whatever it might be so we have open lines of communication but it took us some work to get there we also you know like even though some of our accounts are separate it's like full disclosure right i know everything about his finances i have all his logins we have a spreadsheet that we share we've sat down and we've worked on our you know our goals together you know we know how much we're saving every month there's open lines but we had to talk about that and for me you know i had to initiate the conversation a lot and i realized that i couldn't initiate the conversation as a di- dictator because it always ended quickly and it would become a fight and so it became okay I know that the best time to talk about money with this guy is when we're out having dinner, for example. And it's not like, let's talk about the whole financial plan. Here's all our paperwork. It's like this one part of our finances, right? And so just being able to build the conversation in little by little made it easier. So everyone has to find their own... You know your partner best. Everyone has to find their own love language when it comes to talking about money and just goals together. But you have to try to have the conversation. And I would just caution that, you know, again, there's all these doctrines and ideas about how couples couple should manage money and relationships. You know, don't take anybody's blueprint and try to fit it or force fit it onto your relationship. Do what works for you as a unit, knowing that you know your partner better than anybody else. Um, because once you start to say, well, this is what Professor So-and-So said, and this is what Bola from Clever Girl Finance said, that it becomes <laughs>
1: <laughs> figure out what works best for both of you. Love that. For me, I can't talk about money in the morning. I can't talk about planning in the morning. I did it today and it was, it was not, it was like, I said, it was like my fiance. I was like, Oh my, I talked about like schedule for trips. I talked about money for wedding. I talked about like people on the list for wedding. And he's like, was like, no, no, no. So was not Too many, too many questions too early. So I was like, okay, I need to circle back, break it up and come back. Last question for me is about, I saw an article that you did and I was really excited about it because this is something I think about maybe once a week, not too much, but um, how to recession proof your finances.
0: Yeah. So recession proofing your finances doesn't just apply to a recession, right? You, You think about the economy from a country perspective or a global perspective, but you also think about your own personal economy, right? So what happens in a recession? There are fewer jobs, there's less spending, things become more expensive, you know, et cetera. Value, property value, investment value may go down, but a recession can happen in your personal life where you lose your job, right? And you need to be able to afford your expenses. So when it comes to recession-proofing your finances, regardless of what's happening in the economy, right? You want to, number one, make sure that you have an emergency fund in place, right? So essentially, start with first thousand dollars that can cover any basic emergency from buying an emergency plane ticket to replacing a tire on your car to fixing like you know a broken thing in your house and then if you once you get that thousand dollars in place then start thinking about okay how do I get this to three months of my living expenses and then six months and then 12 months and then people hear that and then they roll their eyes like yeah well you're here telling us about saving 12 months are you crazy but hear me out When you think about (laughs) emergency savings, right, that three to six months, that 12 months is your basic living expenses. It's not like my daily Starbucks or hanging out with my friends. This is paying my rent, getting to work, putting food in my belly, right? And then everything else, the cable, the Netflix, the pedicures, manicures get thrown out the window until you get to the point where you can afford those things again. So it's really your basic. And that makes that number more manageable. What is that amount of money that you need to put aside? Like if push comes to shove, right? Then before you even pay debt, you're going to pay for where you live. You're going to pay to put food in your belly. And you're going to pay to go out and find a job so you can pay that debt. So those are your top three categories. Um, You want to have that emergency fund in place. Before a recession happens, right, it's super smart that you start aggressively paying down your debt, especially your high interest debt. So, get a plan in place to start making more payments than the minimum. Super, super important. Like those two things, the emergency fund and then also um, paying down debt are really, really critical when it comes to being able to weather a storm like a recession or like a job loss. Um, Another thing is think about ways to diversify your income. How can you bring in more income? So, by starting out with investing, that's a long-term approach to increasing your income because your investments will earn gains over time as they grow in value. But then there's other things you can do like, you know, side hustles, for example, part-time job, selling things in your house that you don't need and putting that money towards your savings or towards your debt. So think about ways that you can increase your income also, and also diversify your income streams. That way, let's say, you know, you lose your full-time job, you still have a part-time option, or you still have your side hustle that you can start to ramp up to full-time, you know, and things like that. This has been so good. <laughs> so, so I'm so I'm glad, glad we always
2: have these recorded in perpetuity so I can go back to them. <laughs> I just, I'm always empowered by these types of conversations. So thank you so much for sharing. And I, my last question, um, before you share all of your incredible resources, <laughs> the book, the pod, Clever Girl Finance, et cetera. Um, you know, as a woman of color in this realm, like in the financial world where a lot of it is white men telling us what we should do and running things, um, what has been your experience? And I just love what you're doing and the message that you're bringing, especially to women. So I would just love to hear about your experience, the challenges and what you're hopeful
1: for.
0: So, you know, I've as a woman of color in this space, I think there are not enough voices. There's not enough women that look like me. There's not enough women, period, talking about personal finance. And, and it may seem like there are a lot of us, but when you think about the numbers, right, think about the personal finance industry or the financial planning industry. I think I read a stat somewhere that about 70 or 80% of financial planners are men in one article. And then I read another article that says 97% of financial advisors Are men, right? So when you think about that, right? Amongst women, we see a lot of us talking about money, but there's still not enough of us. And as a woman of color, I remember, you know, coming out of college trying to save money. There was nobody that looked like me. Um, There were very few women. That personal finance book I picked up was it was a book for women written by (laughs) man, right? Okay, and it was just like wow, you know. And, And I feel like it's not because we. We don't want to talk about finance, it's because when you just think about like backgrounds, right? A lot of us did not grow up talking about money at the dinner table. When you think about the traditional setting of the home, think about your grandmothers or your mothers depending on their age, what typically happened? The the fathers would pull their sons aside and talk about business and money, and the mothers would pull their daughters aside and talk about homemaking and recipes, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. But we've now come into this generation where you know we're here. And we're in the space where women are making more money than their mothers and their grandmothers, right? But despite that, there's the gender wage gap, right? We're earning 20% less on average. And you look at it by demographic, it's, it's much more discouraging. Um, many women are choosing not to get married. Many women are sole household earners, breadwinners, single moms. Um, we're in this position that we haven't been generationally taught to talk about money, but we have to. Face it, because we have to take ownership for our, of our money in order to succeed. Especially given the fact that we're living longer than men, so over the course of our lifetimes, we need more money, right? Plus, we take time off of work to raise our babies, <laughs> either temporarily or permanently. So there's there's a lot of factors working against us, and we really have to start talking about money. So for me, you know, I, I want to see more women, more women of color talking about money. I sat down with another woman. And she told me that she felt that, you know, women and women of color, the focus on that in the personal finance space is a gimmick because she personally feels that everybody, men and women have equal opportunity when it comes to money. And I was like, I'm, I'm confused. <laughs> you know, like yeah. what world do you live in? There is yeah. nothing equal. Starting with the gender pay wage gap, right? Standing, starting with socioeconomic backgrounds that people come, come from, there is nothing equal about the opportunities that, that women have, women of color have when it comes to finance. So, you know, that was just more fuel for me to continue doing what I'm doing. But I would definitely love to see more women in the space, more women of color in the space, um, because we are, we're doing big things. Like, you know, studies show that when we have the opportunity, and we have the education, we're better with money. We are better investors. We make more level-headed decisions. We're opening businesses at record paces. We are graduating college at record paces. Like if we, if we rule the world, there'll be no wars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we will solve world hunger, right? We are powerful. And I think the more of us that are out there to push the, the message and change that narrative, um, the bigger the impact of change will be.
1: I love that. Thank you so much for empowering us, for sharing your insight today. This has been so much fun. Can you share with our audience where they can find you, where they can connect with you and all about your socials and resources?
0: Yeah, so thank you ladies so much for having me on. And folks can find me at clevergirlfinance.com on the website and on our social media, on Instagram at clevergirlfinance and YouTube at clevergirlfinance. And I also have a podcast called Clever Girls Know and that's available everywhere you listen to your podcast yes beautiful thank Love you so much for thank joining you. us thank you and so hopefully much.
2: we can see you sometime in new york Yeah,
0: we'll
2: be there this year we'll let you
1: know
0: yes let yeah, me, me know you.
1: Thank you so much, Bola. She's at Clever Girl Finance on Instagram and clevergirlfinance.com. And please share this episode with someone you think it could impact. Someone maybe you know that wants more information on financial health and wellness. We would love to support them with this.
2: Thank you again for listening and we will see you on the next one. Stay tuned for our episodes on Thursdays, which is a solo episode. So it's either Krista and I or just one of us solo connecting with you, sharing vulnerably about what's going on in real time. We'll see you
1: next time. See you next time. Bye-bye.